Hello, welcome to Carl's Orbit, where interesting people from all walks of life are interviewed as to who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Well, our guest today is uh, Dr. Carl Gephardt. He's professor of astrophysics in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, he'll be talking about the topic having to do with naked black holes in space, which is... Uh, quite an interesting topic and a lot of information involved in terms of what black holes are how they form and so on well welcome to Carl's Orbit Dr. Gebhardt well thank you Carl it's uh it's very nice to be in your orbit and I'll, I will enjoy it for a little bit <laughs> okay okay yeah, I wonder <laughs> your first name is Carl and my first name is Carl is it your orbit or mine it's both I guess right <laughs> that's right and they're both K as well yes yes <laughs> well well, now, can you tell us then about your research that you're doing involving this interesting topic of naked black holes in space? Sure. So I, I've been working on black holes for a large part of my career. Uh, it's been fantastically, uh, uh, fantastically fun. Um, and we, over the last, I would say, 20 years, the knowledge we've gained on black holes and their effect on galaxies and their understanding of gravity has been enormous. It's been kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of exciting to watch. One thing that I've always been interesting, I'm interested in trying to find are these black holes that get ejected from a galaxy based on the interaction with either another black hole or a massive star in a, in a binary system. Um, and these are incredibly hard to find. The expectation is that they're there, uh, and now I'm I'm starting a program where we'll be able to find them. Okay, exactly. What is a black hole, by the way? So, so a black hole is a point where you put so much mass, so much mass is condensing down to a very small spot that there's nothing left that even gravity itself can't hold up. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that that even n nuclear forces can't hold back uh, the push of gravity. So let me just back up a bit. Um, so any type of a system, you know, like like the Earth or our bodies on the Earth, we are affected by gravity. I'm sitting here in a chair. I assume you're sitting in a chair too. The reason you don't fall through towards the center of the Earth is because of the electromagnetic forces between the atoms in, you know, between my butt and the chair or your feet and the floor. And that's why you don't fall through. Those are stronger than gravity. Well, if you keep adding mass to a system, yeah. eventually you're going to get to a point where the gravity is so strong that you can blow right through that force. There are other forces that kick in. You just blow through those forces. And you end up at some point where there's so much mass that the gravity just wins out and it just uh, completely uh, collapses to nothing effectively. Ah, uh, okay. Now, how do these black holes escape? Because where do they form? You usually find them in galaxies, don't you? Yep. So the idea, so one thing we worked on uh, over 20 years ago now, this was part of the, uh, the team we call the Nukers, that was a group I worked in for uh, a very long time. <laughs> Fantastically fun a project with this a group. It was right when Hubble Space Telescope was coming out. And one of the major results we came up with is that every galaxy contains a massive black hole in its center. 
that was kind of a new and unique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it had a lot of impact in terms of how a galaxy forms. So what happens is since every galaxy has a black hole and essentially all galaxies have gone through a merger with another galaxy. So galaxies merge all the time. We see this. We believe the Milky Way has gone through a few uh, a few minor mergers. We know we're going to merge with the Andromeda galaxy at some point. That's our that's our neighbor. Huh. And when two galaxies merge, if they each have a black hole, those uh, both of those black holes find their way into the new center and they form a binary and then eventually a third galaxy comes in with another black hole and then you'll get what's called a three-body interaction in the middle of the galaxy and almost always what you end up with according to the theoretical numerical models is you in- you eject the black hole ah so the black hole gets kicked out because of that interaction between the yep. three bodies ah okay it's like uh, it's like the gravitational slingshot effect is what happens there now this and the uh, the black hole that gets ejected is that as large as the original supermassive black hole that it came from um so uh, yes they can be quite as large so so the when you have these two galaxies these two black holes that merge um uh you can there's a couple scenarios one is you can kick out the binary and the other black hole that came in you can kick out the one black hole or you can just kick out the binary but the expectation is that the mass of the black holes will will be the same approximately the same as the black holes that remain in the center of the galaxy so they can be very massive um and that's and that And, and every time I've seen a numerical simulation where they try to model this, there is the expectation that there's a large number. We're large, you know, we're not talking astronomical large. Now we're talking hundreds of these free-floating black holes around every galaxy. Ah, ah. Now, now how do you uh, find these black holes? What technique yeah. do you use? Exactly. So they're hard. <laughs> Normally, see, a black hole is is called the black is called black because it doesn't emit any light. Uh, and this is what happens inside of a black hole is that the uh, the gravity becomes so strong that it curves space time enough that even if you generate light in the middle of a black hole, it won't be able to make it out because the space time is curved. So it just can't make it out. So it's black. So it's dark. There's yeah, no light coming yeah. off of it. So the only way we find black holes is you have to have some material that is going around the black hole. Ah, ah, ah. It could be a star, it could be gas. In, in most of the cases uh in that in in the in the first cases that we knew there were black holes it was gas. If you just have a uh, a bunch of gas floating around the black hole it forms an accretion disk. The gas particles are moving incredibly fast, they collide into each other and they and they generate enormous amounts of light. So what we do is we look for signatures of this gas. That's the only way we're going to find these I I call them naked black holes because there's no a galaxy around them. Yeah. But yeah. they have to have some amount of light or we can't see them. 
So I, I guess we can call them, you know, I don't know, scantily clad or something like that. Like, no, okay. We don't want to go too far in that direction. We don't want to go too far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's an interesting win. Are you looking for the effect of the gravity of the black hole on any kind of matter around it? That's right. And, and the thing is, you don't know where to look with your telescope, right? So normally when we um, find all the black holes that ha have been registered, we 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 generally look in the centers of galaxies because that's where these supermassive black holes are. I should I should make a big distinction. So there's a um, so Carl, there's an important point here that what what we're talking about right now are what we call the supermassive black holes. These uh -huh. are the ones that live in the centers of galaxies, as opposed to the black holes that that are just a normal byproduct of stellar evolution. Those black holes are of order, you know, a few times the mass of the sun, up to ten times the mass of the sun. Uh, uh. The black holes that I'm talking about are a million to up to ten billion times the mass of the sun in the centers of galaxies. Uh. Um, yeah, and, and 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 that's the thing with these naked black holes is that we don't know uh, where they are, and so you have to use a giant survey of the sky, and and you don't know where to point. And, but hopefully, you just happen to hit one that is in the spot of the in the part of the sky where you're that you're looking at. Uh, um, Dr. Gebhardt, um, when you're looking for these black holes, uh, is there a difference between looking for them using visible light or one of the other wavelengths, like infrared, for example, or something of that nature? Yep. So I am looking in, I, I, I'm looking for them in optical light, in visual, in, uh, invisible light. Uh, and the, it's, what the signature is of the black hole is, is a generally, it's not so much the type of light. It's, it's not so much the color, whether it's infrared or x-ray or radio. Uh, it's the, uh, spectrum of the light where you can get information on how fast the gas is moving. Uh -huh. And this is the key to detecting a black hole and to knowing that it's a black hole. If you have some information that that shows that the light, that the gas is moving at high velocities, then you can infer it's a black hole from those very high velocities. Oh, I see, I see. And what telescope are you using, by the way? Use one telescope or a variety? Uh, how do you do that? Right, so we are using the Hobby Eberly Telescope. This is a 10-meter telescope out in West Texas. It's about seven hours from my door to there, which is a little far away. But um, uh, we have a professional astronomers at the telescope who take the data every single night. Actually, just this morning, I got a, a nice email saying I got a bunch of data from the previous night, which is so much fun. Um, and and so every night, basically, you know, I'm I'm, I'm getting data on this very large survey I'm doing. And I scan that um, that data to try to find these naked black holes. Ah, okay, okay. And uh, as you're uh, receiving the data, how often do you uh, receive the data? Is it an ongoing project, like maybe once a month or once a week or once a year? Right. So this leads into this uh, uh, this massive project that I've been running. So this is there's a project called Hetdex. This is the Hobby Everly Telescope Dark Energy Experiment. Mm. Uh, and this is a project that's going after dark energy, but uh, there is so much other information we can gain from it. 
And every day, pretty much every single day, I get data for this project. It's been running for five years now, and we have another two years to go, uh, and then we will have uh, gotten all the data that we need at that point. Now, at this point, what kind of information and data have you obtained from the research you're doing? Right. So, Headdex is a project where we have built the largest spectra in the world, of the largest spectrograph in the world by about a factor of 50, some some insane wow. uh, size increase. What we're doing is we've put 35,000 optical fibers, and optical fiber is what's used in telecommunication. We put 35,000 optical fibers in the focal plane of the telescope. And it's kind of just, you know, point and shoot. So we take a, we point to one area of the sky, uh, uh, I take data for 20 minutes, move to another area, another area, another area, another area. This is very different from a typical survey where in a typical survey, you know which object you're pointing at and you, you know, you put like a single um, a fiber or you put your image right, you put the object right in the middle of the image. Yeah. With with our experiment, we don't need to know, we don't have to point us at a, at a particular spot. It depends, it's, it's pretty much anywhere around the sky. Uh, and then we search the database to try to find the objects. It goes through a spectrograph, which is just like, a, you know, it's a, it, it's like a rainbow it, uh, where you can see the light break up into its constituent wavelengths. So it's kind of a shotgun approach, I would imagine. And and when you're doing it, uh, is there any kind of special part of the sky that might be an area that would have a greater potential of you discovering these uh, black holes? So one, uh, not really. Uh, one thing you don't want to do is look at the milk at the at the center of the Milky Way. And the reason is, we are trying to find galaxies that are 10 billion years old like so in the distant past and if you look through the milky way the milky way is such high density that and it, it just it, it gets in the way so you want to find a relatively clean area and in fact where we're looking is the big dipper <laughs> which we all know and love it's one of the few constellations yeah. that i actually know <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> and so we're scanning the area around the big dipper so the Big Dipper is pouring out these black holes, you're saying? Exactly. We our our goal was to figure out what's inside that pot. We always we all wanted to know. Well, I'll 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 let you know, Carl, when we yeah. figure it out. <laughs> well, that's quite interesting work. Now, now, uh, uh, how would you uh, characterize the importance of this work? Oh, I would say it's very important. <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> the Hubble uh, Telescope, a dark energy experiment, HETEX, this is an experiment to understand why the universe is expanding the way it is. If you recall back in like 1998, there was a crazy exciting result that said our universe is expanding, is accelerating in its expansion, which means every year, we're expanding faster and faster and faster. Mm. Uh, and we don't understand that acceleration. This is what we, the community has called dark energy. And we're trying to understand what that is. What Hetex is doing, it is looking at how the universe was expanding 10 billion years ago. And if we compare how fast it was expanding 10 billion years ago 
to how fast it's expanding now, then we can get an understanding of the physics that's behind that. So our uh, goal uh. is to understand the physics of why the universe is expanding, and it most likely has to do with models of gravity. We're trying to understand what gravity is. So I would say, you know, it's kind of important. Yes. Wow. I'm excited wow. by it. <laughs> <laughs> so considering gravity, then, uh, is it possible to include also the hypothesis that uh, there is some other kind of bunch of matter that's tugging on us, uh, causing us to accelerate, like yeah. another another universe, possibly? Well, okay. So this is an awesome idea, and this. Is, so, so let's let's talk about this a bit because I, I uh, th that was a very good comment. The um, I, I wouldn't say another universe, but there are some ideas out there just like that. So one thing that I it's important for me is if I can't put observational constraints on the model, then I kind of say, well, I don't really care that much. It's you know, it's it's still fun and exciting. I think of it as more philosophy. When we talk about other universes, other dimensions, fantastic! It's fun. I love it. It's interesting. Um, but if I can't test it, then it yeah, doesn't no. do a lot for me. One idea, though, which is really cool, it's kind of like a Hubble bubble, like a really large Hubble bubble. So let me explain what our what our, our universe may be, and and this is this falls right in line with what you. I just said. So imagine our observable universe. Okay, so the observable universe's design is is defined by how far light has been able to travel since the beginning of our universe. There is material beyond the observable universe. In other words, our universe is significantly bigger than what we can see. Right? Wow. Wow. And and so imagine that inside of our universe, say 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 our 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 particular observable universe. Say we just happen to be born in an area of the whole universe that was a little bit under dense. Okay, so just uh, I, I just imagine that we are sitting in a bubble. We're kind of in this. Uh, And and you know that that can easily happen. And we could be, or maybe our universe could have been born in a very dense spot or a very under dense spot. It doesn't really matter. So say we're we are born in this under dense matter. As we look at the edge of our observable universe, if you can imagine a bubble, there's all this material just outside the universe that we can't see. Okay. So if we look at an object at the edge of our universe, it's being pulled more. Towards that side than our side, and so we think when we look at it, we think that our universe is expanding, is accelerating, when in fact not. We're just in a bubble, and these galaxies are being pulled towards this big source. Oh, so it's a kind of an illusion, isn't it? Like a mirage. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's that's a good point. So, so one thing that was really important for me when designing Hepex is uh, I I I. I didn't quite tell the whole story. We're looking towards the Big Dipper, but it was very important for me that we look through another spot in the sky too, and we're looking close to Eridanus, which is another major constellation that's up in the uh, up in the fall. Um, and so, if you have these two sight lines, if they don't give you the same answer, then it is most likely that it has to do with. How we are distributed in the universe, and it could be that this Hubble bubble is the explanation.
because it would be very unlikely that we're exactly in the middle of the bubble. We just have to be at some point in this low density. And then in that case, we would get two different measurements depending on where we look. Oh, wow. Well, Dr. Gebhardt, uh, uh, the area of the sky that you're surveying, uh, uh, in the area of the Big Dipper, is that the area where where initially it, it, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything there, then all of a sudden when you look deep sky with the telescope, you yeah. find there's uh, thousands of galaxies? Yeah, that's so cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's actually everywhere. I mean, everywhere you do that, uh, that and that's one of the one of the the fundamentals of 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 astronomy and our theory of the universe is that everywhere you look it should be the same and that has been the case every so there was a very a famous observation of Hubble Space Telescope they spent like 10 days on one area of the sky and you're exactly right that's the area that we're looking at uh, where they just observed it they just didn't move the telescope like 10 days at this one area and it's called the Hubble Deep Field and it's just it's just beautiful uh, uh. now that, I noticed I noticed in looking up information about you doing research that uh, you're focusing uh, specifically it seems to me on elliptical galaxies versus galaxies that have spiral arms is there a reason for that so when I do the black hole yes when I do the black hole mass measures okay when I try to measure uh, a black hole mass to as high as high an accuracy as I can we wanted to focus on the ellipticals for for two main reasons one is that though these galaxies are the very massive galaxies in the universe and uh, we expected that these very massive galaxies would host the most massive black holes so we kind of you know we kind of baited uh, ourselves by by you know we we want a fishing in the pond that we knew was well stocked yeah. <laughs> so think about it <laughs> and we found these very big black holes now the other reason that they're very interesting is that um, the um, spiral galaxies that have all, have all these arms have, along with the spiral galaxies, come a lot of gas and dust. And when you have a lot of gas and dust, it makes it really hard to see into the to peer into the center of the galaxies. Whereas in ellipticals, you do not have that problem. Ah, ah, okay, okay. Now, now the ellipticals. Um, also, too, I noticed that you're involved in research dealing with globular clusters. Is there a connection between the clusters and uh, uh, galaxies in general, for example? Uh, so we don't know exactly. I think uh, most people would argue that a globular cluster and a galaxy are, are, are not related. I would argue so, but they have a, a similar formation that let me explain. So for a globular, what a globular cluster is, I should explain what a globular cluster is. It's a collection of about, you know, I would say 10,000 to up to 10 million stars. So it's a, it's a, it, it, it's like a very small galaxy. Um, and they form very early on. So globular clusters were one of the first structures in the universe to, to collapse out of this you know this this a very hot uh, early universe um, and then the galaxies came later so but the galaxies were much larger structures when we look for globular clusters they tend to be around the galaxy 
So the formation, you know, is kind of the same. It's all a, a gravity, but the galaxies are so much larger that there's different physics that is going on in the galaxy compared to a globular cluster. Ah. However, however big, huge thing, uh, Carl, is that the, um, and this is when I was in Jersey, which is easily my favorite state I've ever lived in. Uh, when I was getting my PhD there at, at, at Rutgers, I spent a lot of time trying to look for black hole masses in globular clusters. And then we could relate whether we find them in globular clusters to the black hole masses that we see in galaxies. Ah, okay, okay. Now, that is an interesting question. Uh, and maybe there's an answer to it at this point. And that is, uh, what came first, the black hole or the galaxy, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> right, right. So this comes back to uh, the topic we're discussing at the beginning, and that's naked black holes. And so, so I gave you one formation mechanism for how to make a naked black hole. That is, you can eject it out of a galaxy. That's kind of a natural one. Another one is maybe the black holes came first, and the galaxy has yet to form around it, or we we and we can't see its light. Um, so the answer is I don't know. It's the common answer that if you ask a scientist any of these big questions, one of the common answers, I don't know. Uh, but one thing we're trying to get to is is by looking early, because to answer the question, you want to go to the earliest part of the universe yeah, to yeah. see which one was there first. And so if we find many of these naked black holes, uh, or maybe we'll find them in very small galaxies, then I'm going to argue that the black hole came first. Ah, okay. And and just to throw another wrench into into the workings here, uh, I know we weren't talking, and maybe you're not doing research in the area, but you might have some ideas about it. And that is dark matter. How does dark matter fit into this picture in terms of what came first? Dark matter, black holes, galaxies. Right. Very good. I mean, dark matter and dark matter has just been around. It's been it, it's been, it's been a mystery for as long as I've been doing research here, uh, and we still don't know what it is. So, okay, when I say a galaxy, you know what? When we think of a galaxy, we've seen these beautiful pictures of ellipticals and spirals, you know, and uh, uh, and all the ones in between there are regular galaxies. Um, when that that is a very small part of the galaxy. It's like it's basically the tip of the iceberg. The, the meat of the iceberg is dark matter. Dark matter makes up uh, 10 times the amount of mass that's in a galaxy. So when you see a galaxy, oh. we just see what we call normal matter, and it has a giant halo of dark matter around it. Uh, so we're trying to study that as well, and I was hoping that would be solved you know, many years ago, but we're just not there yet. It's just been way harder than, than what anyone thought, and we know, I think the the expectation is that dark matter is a particle that we haven't detected yet. There's been lots of search for this particle and nothing conclusive yet. So I think the theorists are going back to the drawing board and trying to figure out what dark matter is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, is it possible that some of our ideas about the nature and phenomenon uh, 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 occurring in the universe uh, is in 
quite understood correctly in terms of the <laughs> physics. <laughs> I can say that's a clear yes to that one. I, I don't have to say I, I don't know on that one, Carl. I can say yes to that one. <laughs> so yeah, let me just explain this. So we we have an energy budget for what we think's in the universe. Seventy percent of that energy budget is is uh, is in uh, dark energy. Twenty-five percent, twenty-six percent is in dark matter, and only four percent is in normal matter—the stuff that you and I are made of, that the Earth, the Sun, blah blah blah. So, so ninety-six percent of what we think—and you know, I want to—I want to put an exclamation on "think." What we think is the energy budget of the universe is in the energy budget of the universe is is in material that we don't know. That we we not only do we not know, but we thought we had an idea of what it was, and now that's changing as well. So it's it's an issue. So it's ninety. We're trying to make a model of the universe where we only know four percent of what's out there. Wow, <laughs> a lot more to go. <laughs> we it's you know I I always call it a job security for、uh, hey that, there you go. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Oh, oh, Dr. Gebhardt, going back to、uh, the idea of these naked black holes just floating around in space,、uh, well, is it possible for them, as they float around, to collect matter and maybe evolve into another galaxy? Very unlikely.、Um, they got so if if well, it, it depends on the scenario. If They came from an ejection scenario from the center, from some type of interaction in the middle of the galaxy. They're out there free floating, and they really would have to run into something massive, and the chance of that is very, very low,、uh, because the universe is a vast and empty space. So if you're just free floating out there, you're not going to hit anything.、Um, so no, I, I, in that case, no. If they are the sites, if the black hole came first, and they're the、um, the sites that highlight. That are the signature of the of the center of the system. Then eventually, over time, the gas and the stars will rain the the gas and the dust will rain down in and form the galaxy around it. So it, it the answer kind of depends on what the object is, and that's what we're trying to answer now. Uh, okay, uh, is it possible to determine the、uh, relative age? Of a galaxy that might be formed around a black hole versus those that uh, uh, weren't, we can date the age of the stars. So, so we can put a number on the age of the stars, and we just base that age on how a star evolves and how it burns hydrogen, the helium, and the stars blow up. So we look at the chemical the chemical composition of the stars in the galaxy. And we could put a quasi date on that. It does. It does pretty well. We need a big telescope to do that if we want to look in the very distant universe. People are trying to do that, and we can do that certainly in the nearby galaxies.、Uh, but to do it for the very distant galaxies, you know, I tried to do this in a a survey very early on、uh, in my career called Deep, <laughs> D E E P, and and and、uh, it's it that's that's hard going.、Uh. Now, is this new telescope, the Webb telescope, designed to do such a thing? Exactly. I don't know why I even mentioned the Webb telescope. Thank you, Carl. Of course, yes, yes, that's what we're doing. <laughs> And many of my colleagues at the University of Texas are trying to measure this. Now, we we will be able to get some handle on the age, but what 
is most exciting there is just finding the faintest the faintest smudges of a galaxy that were the first ones to be formed uh and that's where the web is going to come in in a huge way so it should find many of these galaxies right after they formed at the first time when galaxies came together wow all this research is quite interesting and i'm glad you and your colleagues are are doing this type of research uh, hey if someone wanted to um maybe pursue more information about what you're doing and how you're doing it uh what would be your website to access so we for hetdex there's hetdex.org uh i actually have we that's that that's getting kind of old but we're really soon uh within a a few weeks we're going to have that updated um you can reach out uh at our, our website at the university of texas as well an excellent site is mcdonald observatory and Stardate. So, uh Stardate is run out of McDonald Observatory. McDonald Observatory is at the University of Texas, and they have all of this information at Tex and the James Webb Space Telescope on their website, so it's very easy to get to. Well, thank you Dr. Carl Gebhardt, uh the uh, professor of astrophysics in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas in Austin talking about naked black holes in space. Fantastic idea. Wow. That was good. Thank you very much. We appreciate that uh, you are a guest. Thank you so, so much. Always always enjoyable. And uh thank you uh, all you listeners for listening in and make sure you tune in again to further podcast Carl's Orbit.